Good morning. Our scripture text this morning is from Exodus chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 47. From the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And... And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we celebrated a couple of birthdays in our household this week. And it struck me, I don't know why it never struck me sooner than this, uh, that people don't really give birthday bumps anymore. You know, when I, when I was growing up, I, I took a beating every February 22nd. Sure, I'd get lots of presents, but I also got lots of, you know, punches, kicks, spankings, uh, with the number, you know, corresponding to the years of age that I had. And, and the crowning glory, of course, was a pinch at the end to, to grow an inch, they would say. It, it seems to me, I, I don't hear much about this anymore, so I did a little bit of research on the interwebs, and at the bottom of one particular rabbit hole, I... I found a letter to parents from a su the superintendent of a school district in North Texas announcing that district's decision to discontinue this tradition that this um, principal has had for the last 
eight or 10 years of giving kids birthday spankings on their birthday. And uh, apparently a few parents had complained and so, and the, the district didn't think that this was a hill to die on. So they discontinued it. And that was in 2018. After, after that, it seems as far as my research can tell, birthday spankings went the way of the dodo bird. <laughs> We've come a long way, baby. I, I'm old enough to remember when principals actu administered actual spankings with the strap. Yeah, I was, I, I was at the age, and I rejoiced. I'll be honest with you, I rejoiced to see this day. I was at the, at the age where the principal had to hang up his strap. But now even fun beatings are prohibited. I'm also at the age where I totally forgot where I was going with all of that. <laughs> it had something to do with butts. It has, uh, when butts become problematic, all right, let's just go with that. that. That's it. Problematic butts, because that's what we discover in our passage this morning. Three problematic butts. And let me just sh start by showing you this structure in the text. So if you'll just, I hope you're, you're still open here to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. This is the passage that Matthias read for us just a few minutes ago. And if you could just scan through for me, look at verse 1. Then Moses said, but, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, but, Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, but, he said, three buts, all of them problematic because they signal objections that Moses makes to the call of God on his life. And last week we looked at that great commission that God gave to Moses and that God has given to us, really, to be his agent of salvation, to, in Moses' case, to, to be his agent to deliver his people Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of their slavery, out of their misery, and to not just, you know, one-sided, but the goal was also to deliver them to something, to a good and a broad land, the Bible says, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And recall that the Lord announces his plans from a burning bush, in the midst of a burning bush, which is a, just a glorious display of his power and his majesty. Not only that, but, but the Lord reveals throughout all of this, he's revealing his name and his character he declares himself to be the great I am. He says that he is Yahweh. And the point here is that all of his power, all of God's promises, all of his person are standing behind this rescue mission so that success is absolutely guaranteed. Despite all of these assurances, Moses has all kinds of reservations. He's, he's reluctant. He's anticipating all sorts of problems. And he's already raised two of them in chapter 3. The first one was, who am I? And the second one was like it. He asks, who are you, God? Who should I tell the people sent me? And you'll remember, I think, that the Lord 
was gracious to answer Moses, and he answered his first objection with just a reminder of his presence. He says, yeah, you're right, you are nothing, but I will be with you. And then he answers the second objection with a revelation of his person. He, he, he declares in a mysterious but magnificent and memorable way just who this God is that we're dealing with. He is the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal God. He is who he is. He's the great I am. And that really should have settled it. I think you'll agree with me. If there was ever a mic drop moment in history, that was it. I, in my mind's ear, I can still, I can still hear the, the sound of f- dropped forks hitting plates when Pee Wee Herman walked into that truck stop and told them Large Marge had sent him. Well, that's nothing compared to the reaction that that the people of Israel ought to have had when Moses would go to them and say, I am sent me. That's it. That's the end of the matter. Move forward. Nevertheless, his his doubts lingered. And here in the first half of chapter 4, Moses is going to air three more objections. I say more objections, but actually the first two of these sound a lot like the previous two. They're versions of the who am I and who are you question, except now they're, they're lodged in reverse order. So they're related objections, but still there's three objections that come to us here in chapter four. And so we're going to see Moses reluctant and resistant to God's call, to God's mission, And in Moses, I suspect that we're going to see something of ourselves. We'll be able to recognize ourselves in this man, in his weakness. We'll see our own. But here's the encouraging part. We're also going to see the Lord patient and reassuring and reaffirming. What we see in this passage is the Lord stooping to our weakness, mighty as he is, as the hymn writer put it. So let's take a look at each of these objections that we find in our passage, and we'll see them together with the Lord's response. These objections to the mission of God come under three headings, and they have to do with, if I could just simplify it for you, they have to do with, number one, authentication, number two, ability and number three availability so those are the three those i think a summary of the three objections and if you're taking notes those will be good headings that you can use and fill in some thoughts underneath first objection has to do with authentication And if you have kids, or if you remember being a kid, then you'll be very familiar with the language of objections. It it sounds something like this, but, 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 and that's precisely the language that Moses employs in this passage. Each but, as we've seen, marking off a new objection. And the first one is found in verse 1, right away, just right off the bat, we're treated to this it says then Moses answered but 
Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. He's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he knows that they are a skeptical bunch. It may have been 40 years ago by this point, but that shot is still ringing in his ears. You know, that shot when that guy said to him, who made you prince and, and judge over us? It's a question of authority. It's a matter of authentication. You know, if you're going to go to your classmates and start enforcing your teacher's no talk and no texting policy, it had better be crystal clear to everyone that when she left the room, she left you in charge. And if it's not, it's, pr it's pretty safe bet that there's going to be some atomic wedgies in your future. There might just be anyway, but th that, author th that, that authority is always going to be the question. There's always need to be some sort of authentication. And Moses has already predicted back in chapter 3, verse 13, that the Israelites are going to question him along these same lines. They're going to ask him, for example, about the Lord's name. And it seems to, to be uh, an authentication question. You say, Moses, that the God of our fathers sent you to us? Well, what's his name? It's like the, in those spy movies, you know, where you got to provide the code name before, before they'll give you access to whatever. This is, this is what it seems to be the case for these Israelites. And as we reviewed a few minutes ago, the Lord graciously gave to Moses all of the right information to get past their obstacle. He says, tell them, I am has sent you. Tell them that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, tell, give, give them that name. That's who's sending you. Now, the mysterious, the marvelous, the majestic name of the one true and living God, as we said, the self-existent, self-sufficient, covenant-keeping God, this is all of the firepower that comes behind that name. And as I said, that should be enough to settle the matter once and for all. If there's any question about authority or authentication, that matter should be settled as soon as you say, I am sent me. But Moses seems to think that the unbelief of the Hebrews is a much bigger obstacle than that, than what the Lord perhaps imagines. He predicts that the people will flatly deny, that they're just going to out and out reject and deny that the Lord had appeared to Moses. That Moses is, is imagining, and in his mind it's quite realistic based on what he knows about them, He's, he's imagining that, that they're going to reject him as deliverer because they couldn't authenticate that he had been divinely dispatched. And that makes all the difference in the world. They don't want a guy who just has his own ideas and um, delusions of grandeur. These people are going to want to know if he has truly been sent by God. Now, on first glance, it seems like Moses is commenting on the unbelief of the people about how quick they're going to be to doubt and to dismiss, to ultimately deny the notion that Moses has been sent to deliver them. 
But actually, this is revealing Moses' unbelief. It's, it's really, I think, the context that brings that point out. You might recall at the end of chapter 3 that the Lord God, in his sovereignty, was able to provide a preview of how this rescue mission was going to go. He stated, God did, with absolute accuracy, what was going to definitely, most certainly, come to pass. Including the fact that Pharaoh was going to resist and refuse until he was compelled by God's mighty outstretched arm. That God accurately stated that. But do you remember what the Lord said about the people of Israel? About what their response was going to be through their representative elders? Look at um, chapter 3, verse 18. The Lord says about them, They will listen to your voice. Now read what Moses says in verse 1 of chapter 4. But behold, they won't listen to my voice. Now you you put that together, and that is a flat-out contradiction of the word of God. It's not particularly sophisticated. It reminds me a lot of, of what we would say back in middle school in the late 80s. You know, some, someone would make a statement, I don't know, something like, new kids on the block are the greatest band ever. And then you'd say, not. And, and it was a sassy way to, to just fully contradict something that you were setting up or that someone else was saying. It's the verbal equivalent of just taking out a big, thick red marker and drawing a circle through what that person said with a diagonal line. Not. Now, it's one thing when you're doing that to another eighth grader with terrible taste in music. It's quite another when you're doing it to the great I am. This bears resemblance, I think, to the move that the serpent made in the Garden of Eden. The, the Lord God had said about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the day that Adam and Eve eat of it, that they would surely die. And the devil slithers up and he says, you will not surely die. And the way that the Hebrew is constructed there, it was basically a direct quote from God with the not. It's flat out contradiction. Friends, the Lord has said, The people will listen to your voice. And Moses says, not. And this is classic unbelief. Moses claims to be worried about unbelief on the part of the people. But he's the first one to demonstrate it. And unbelief will make you say and do some pretty ridiculous things. I'm thinking in particular of the the little word in verse 1. Behold. Now, I I admit that I'm initially drawn to this word for a silly reason. uh, Because Jamie and I once heard a preacher give uh, a tortured exegesis of this word. And we've been chuckling about it ever since. Every time we hear it. The guy, this, this preacher, broke that word up into two parts, be and hold. And B, he said, was the verb, the same verb as the name I am. 
So B basically means I am. And you know what hold means. And so his message to us was, well, hold B. Behold means to hold I am. And anyway, so from that point forward, my wife and I have been chuckling about that. It, it, I, I wanted to just stand right up in the middle of the sermon and say, not, but I restrained myself. But that, you understand, that's not what behold means. It, it preaches, but it's not exactly what it means. It's an expression you use when you want to draw someone's attention to something, when you want them to look and perhaps understand something that they may not have otherwise noticed or understood. Like in chapter 3, verse 2, for example, we, we read about the bush that the Lord appeared to Moses in, and the text says, behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And the idea is, get a load of that. that that's surprising. That's information that you otherwise would not have known. The behold is drawing our attention to something very surprising, to, to new information. But Moses is saying to the Lord in verse 1, but behold, Lord, and whatever he's about to say he believes that he needs to call the Lord's attention to it. He needs to let the Lord know in on a fact that he doesn't yet know. And Moses is talking like he knows more about the situation than the Lord does, which I hope you'll all be able to agree with me, is crazy talk. Crazy talk that we also engage in. Will you admit? I'll admit. We engage in that sort of crazy talk all the time. In our unbelief, in our reluctance to engage in the task that the Lord has called us to. We say, and maybe, maybe we don't say this out loud, but we certainly have this dialogue running around in our heads. We say, Lord, you don't understand. My, my neighbor is nasty. He, he bites his head off when leaves that originate on my trees end up on his yard. So there's no way he's going to listen to me about the gospel. Behold, Lord, I don't know if you know this, but that island that you're calling me to, those people are cannibals. I, I, you know, we say this type of thing after the Lord has revealed his will to us and and he's told us very clearly in scripture that he's going to gather to, for himself a people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. And, and, we, and, and from that point, we say, oh, but Lord, you don't understand this about that people, about that country. And I hope that you can see that our reluctance, which is our disobedience at the end of the day, is unbelief. It's stemming very clearly from unbelief. Mercifully, though, we have a God who is so patient in the midst of our unbelief. A bruised reed he will not break, the scriptures say. A smoldering wick he doesn't snuff out. Our, our Lord loves to answer these kinds of prayers, prayers that go like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. True, it's far better to, to walk by faith 
As, as Jesus says to doubting Thomas, have you believed me because you've seen, seen me? Good, fine, but blessed are those who have, seen, who have not seen and believed. Faith is better than sight. That's certainly true. But don't miss the fact that Jesus did invite Thomas to put his fingers in the nail hole and to put his hands in the spear hole. And what I'm suggesting to you is that God graciously accommodates even our unbelief. The Lord is, is very quick and happy to bolster our flagging faith. What a God he is. The Lord's answer to Moses' objection about authentication is to give him a toolbox of three signs so that he could give to the people of Israel, if necessary, if what Moses thinks is going to play out really does play out. The Lord's already given Moses a sign. Maybe you'll remember back to verse 12 of the previous chapter, but it was a future sign. It was a sign that was going to require faith. You know, the, the authenticity of Moses' call was going to be demonstrated at a future time after the Exodus, when they together as a, as a redeemed people would be back on this mountain worshiping the Lord. The Lord says, that's, that's your sign that I have called you. But it was going to require faith. You've got to step out before that ever happens. The Lord here knows that Moses and the people are going to need an immediate sign. They, they, they want to see his power demonstrated in the present. And so he gives three. He gives three signs. The first sign has to do with his shepherd staff. And I won't have time to talk about this today, but you'll just want to make a note that the staff his staff is going to be very important throughout this whole narrative and very uh, symbolic of the type of leader that he was called to be. He was called to shepherd the people, Israel. It's also a symbol of the power of God because God is going to use this ordinary tool. He's a shepherd. This is basic. This is a basic shepherding tool. The Lord is going to use it in extraordinary ways for the deliverance of his people. But here's just a, a preview of that. The Lord instructs him to throw it to the ground, and when he does, it turns into a snake. And Moses instinctively does what I'm guessing 99% of us would do, which is that he takes off running. You know, like roadrunner contrails. He's gone. He's out of there. But then he's called to come back and he's commanded to pick up the nasty thing by the tail. And when he does, it immediately turns back into a staff. The second sign required Moses to stick in his hand into his trench coat. And then when he pulled it out, it was full of leprosy. It was all white with nasty sores, and patchy, peeling skin. But then when he returned his hand to his cloak and pulled it out again, behold, like, look, check that out. His hand was fully restored. The third sign was to take some water out of the Nile River and to pour it on the ground, and then it would become blood. So three signs, and what all of these signs have in common is that they are striking demonstrations, I hope you'll agree, 
of the power of God. They show his control over nature. They show his control over disease, over death. And at the same time, they are signs that show the Lord's total domination over the gods of Egypt. And we're going to see this more clearly, I think, when we look at the, the plagues and that sort of thing. But these three signs are just a preview of those plagues that will come. They're not random signs. I'll just put it that way. They strike at the very heart of Egyptian life and culture and religion. That's perhaps the most important point. And they show beyond a shadow of a doubt Yahweh's superiority over all of their gods. Over the power of the Pharaoh. The serpent, for example, is just a classic symbol of Egyptian deity and power. That was basically their brand. You know, on every headdress or every piece of jewelry or furniture, a pharaoh had a cobra's head. And that, you know, that's a, that's a demonstration of his deity almost. The, the snake is symbolic of, of everything that enables him to do what he does. But by the power of the Lord, snakes are created and destroyed not at the drop of a hat, but at the drop of a bat. Let's put it that way. It's just like no problem. Snake, no snake. Staff, snake, staff. This is, this is the ultimate symbol of deity. And through the power of the Lord, it's, it's nothing. Likewise, the Nile represents life to the Egyptians. The, the only reason that land is possible, the only reason they have a booming economy is because of the Nile River. It's the foundation for everything. Without it, there's, there's no culture, there's no economy, there's no life. It represents life. But in Moses' hands, by the power of God, that symbol of life turns instantly into a symbol of death. Blood on the ground. Water to blood in the blink of an eye. And we're going to come across that sign again. In the meantime, understand that these signs are not first for the Egyptians, but they're for the Israelites. And, and, the, and they're for the Israelites in the sense of their purpose, we can read about this in verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you, Moses. That should solve the authentication problem. That should answer Moses' objection. But he's got another objection waiting in the chamber, and it comes hot on the heels after this one's dealt with. And it has to do with his ability. Ability. Look at verse 10. But, uh-oh, here we go. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Literally, he's saying, I'm heavy of, of speech, heavy of tongue. You know, words don't come easily. It's a struggle. I have a hard time making this connection from my brain to my mouth. 
we, we don't actually know what this means for Moses. We don't know if he, that meant that he had some sort of a speech impediment. Maybe he was a stutterer. Or maybe the problem was simply, you know, he's been out in the sticks for the last 40 years and um, living a solitary blue collar kind of life. And you know how that goes. You develop kind of your own language, your own brogue, and you lose the ability to be able to interact on a very precise way with royalty and government or whatever. You know, back in his university days there in in Egypt, he, he could debate with, with the rest of it. He could keep up to all of that stuff. He was mighty in, in word and deed, as Stephen said. But these days, words don't come easy to old Moses. Who knows exactly the extent of his problem? But it is, for him, a major objection. And I wonder if you've ever raised a similar objection about your abilities or about your lack thereof. When it comes to something that the Lord was calling you to, maybe, maybe a ministry that you felt that he was prompting you to engage in, and, and you're like, oh, oh no, Lord, you don't, you don't understand. I'm too shy. I, I'm not educated enough. Other people have been to school for this thing. I, I barely made it through high school. I'm not good. Lord, I'm not good with kids. You know that. I don't have enough knowledge of the Bible. There's, there's no way that I could teach that class or lead that discussion. There's no way that I could share my faith with my science teacher. I just, do you say, do you ever say anything like that to the Lord? Now, what's so deceptive about objecting along the lines of ability is that it seems very humble. It seems very humble. It seems like just the right blend of self-deprecation and self-distrust and it you know those things are appropriate for christians to have right so it sounds very christian to to speak like this he must increase and i must decrease we say with john the baptist and we think that that requires us to take a diminished view of our abilities and as i said that has the appearance of being holy and being humble but actually it's self-indulgent. Now, if you'll indulge me, I want to try my hand at some illegitimate exegesis. Okay, let me be a, a preacher who butchers a word for the sake of a point from time to time. Just look at the word ability, the actual word ability. Write it out if you have to. What letter is most prominent? It's the eyes right there there they are like snake eyes staring at you right in the middle and now look at Moses's objection to his about his ability in verse 10 just look at that verse what is most prominent in that little speech the word I I am not eloquent I am slow of speech I am slow of tongue it seems humble seems humble it's actually self-indulgent. It, it turns out that my ability objections are focused exclusively on me, believe it or not. It, it's, not it's not even that I'm ignoring the Lord in all of this. It's worse than that. It's actu I'm actually blaming the Lord. 
Listen carefully to what Moses says in verse 10. He says, as you know, Lord, uh, I've had this problem in the past. I've had it since I was born. It's almost like you've made me this way. And I can't help but notice, Lord, but even since we've been talking like this here at this burning bush, I, I, I've noticed that you still haven't corrected my problem. I don't, I don't think I'm reading too much into what he's very politely saying in the text. And one of the interesting features of this passage, which doesn't translate very well into English, is that Moses is exceptionally polite all throughout here. He's addressing the Lord in all of the right ways. It's very nice. But the implications of what he's saying are ugly. They're, they're certainly unbelieving, but they're borderline blasphemous. We find the Lord's response in verse 11 is to recenter Moses around the only I that matters, even the great I am. He says, hey, hey, Moses, remind me, who was it that made your mouth? Uh, I'm having trouble remembering Moses. Who, who is it, that, again, that makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? And you see how in the juxtaposition, the Lord's I is a strong answer to Moses' eyes. Is it not I? Moses objects by saying, I, I, and, and the Lord answers by saying, no, I. And here's what we need to know as it pertains to our ability or our lack of ability. I am is all that we need. In the face of our deficiencies, the Lord graciously promises his power and his presence and not just generally, not just in abstractions, not just I will be with you generally, but look at what the text says. I will be with your mouth. In other words, he's going to be in the very specific area of your inadequacy. What a, what a promise. What a laser-focused promise that is. And that's the promise that he gives in verse 12 that is attached to a renewed command to go. Enough of this chatter, enough of your objections. Go and accomplish the mission that I've called you to. And so we read in Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the good news of the gospel, he, he forewarns them of the danger, the persecution that they'll most certainly encounter but he says this, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you will say. For what you will say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In, in summary, let me just riff on the concept of father. And again, bear, just bear with my foolishness here. If you want to make the eyes less prominent in the word ability, then 
How about expanding out the ab part of the word? Expand it out to the word Abba. Who cares? We can do anything we want with words, apparently. Expand it out to Abba. Focus on your Abba-ility. He's the one who has sovereignly designed you. He's the one that equips you. And, and he promises that he will be with you in that very specific area of your inadequacy. And by the way, if you think he's a flawed designer, understand that, that you're that way by design. Moses is that way by design. It's so that his power might be made manifest in your weakness. It's so that when the mission is accomplished, there will be no illusions whatsoever about how it was accomplished. The Lord is going to be sure to get all of the glory. Now let's turn uh, quickly to a, a third and final objection in verse 13. And this objection has to do with availability. But Moses says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And again, that's very polite, especially in the Hebrew. Literally, he's saying something like, send, pray, by the hand of someone whomever you send. It's kind of like Hebrew circularity and redundancy. Send, pray, by the hand of whomever you will send. And it sounds, you know, as one commentator says, on face value, it sounds very deferential, but really it's defiance. You, you can't church that up too much. You, you, that's what it is. It's defiance. Moses is saying, please send whomever, as long as that whomever is not me. And we, we can certainly couch our resistance in, in, language of, in the language of holiness or even humor. You know, so I, I'm reminded of that Scott Wesley Brown song that was popular when I was younger. Please don't send me to Africa. Have you heard that one? It's, it's cute. It's funny. But at the end of the day, our resistance, our objections to the call of God and to the will of God, it's sin. It's despicable sin. And, and that sin invites God's displeasure. And so Moses records for us God's reaction to this resistance in verse 14. It says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And rightly so. You know, the Lord is so patient with us. But when we constantly push back and when we ultimately fail to obey, then the Lord is absolutely right to be angry. And, and what is so amazing, though, is that even in his anger, God is so accommodating to our weakness. This is not to excuse our weakness. It's just to marvel at the grace of God that can tolerate us and, to and that stoops to our weakness. It would have been perfectly just for God to just rebuke Moses. They're, you know, they're in a, he's in a burning bush. It would, be, it would be right to just kind of blast righteous indignation towards Moses and insist that he obey, to just stop talking and do. Instead, the Lord graciously offers Moses' brother, Aaron, to function in the role of spokesman. The Lord says that the two of them are going to have 
you know, they're going to play similar roles to the relationship in prophecy. You know, in prophecy, God um, speaks words, gives words to his messenger to, to speak. And this is going to be the relationship. Moses is going to be like God in that setup, in that he's going to give Aaron the words to say, and Aaron's going to formulate them and articulate them and deliver them. Okay, so that's the Lord's accommodation. Notice Moses didn't suggest this precisely. He's wanting out of it completely. But here's something that's very interesting to me, and I understand we don't have the time to explore it now, but this is going to be a recurring theme in Exodus. So we'll have a chance to, to talk about it at some point. And the theme that I'm talking about is this relationship between the sovereignty of God, who you understand has ordained everything that shall come to pass, and at the same time, human freedom, which, as you can see, involves all kinds of contingencies and uncertainties. And you wonder, how do these two things relate to one another? The book of Exodus, and the Bible for that matter, um, gives us lots of examples of how these things do work together. And, and they hold them together in perfect tension in a way that's just remarkable. And this is, a, this is just a great example of it. Clearly, it's sinful for Moses to object and to ask for someone else to go you know, this partnership deal, that is clearly not plan A, if, if we can put it that way. Yet, even before Moses has articulated his objection, the Lord has already dispatched Aaron. That's, that's a head-scratcher. But the, the way around that is not to deny that God is absolutely sovereign. Or to, or to posit that human beings are just kind of robots. That's, neither of those is the way around it. All we can do here, friends, is marvel at the, the patience and the power, the tenderness and the absolute control of the great I am. And then consider this with me in closing. I wonder if it does this for you, this passage doesn't it all of this make you marvel at the perfect obedience of christ we like like moses are we're unwilling workers let's just face it so often we're reluctant we're resistant we're self-conscious we're self-focused and many times at the end of the day we just don't obey we would way rather have our preference would be if we were just removed out of the thing completely and someone else could do it. And the glorious news of the gospel is that someone else has done it and has done it perfectly. The Lord has answered our prayer to send, pray, at the hand of whomever you will send. That He has sent his own son. And the Lord Jesus Christ has gone readily uh, willingly, obediently. Jesus came to do the will of him who sent him. And that will was to accomplish the salvation for a people like you and me who are reluctant and rebellious and disobedient and self-centered. 
and he has, he has accomplished that will. I think of the great Presbyterian stalwart, J. Gresham Machen, uh, who lived in the last century. He stood valiantly against liberalism. But I think he put it best on his deathbed. His last recorded words were, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. This is our hope, friends, in, in both death and life. The obedience of Christ. And his obedience, that's, that's what's going to propel me into glory. And that same obedience of Christ is what's going to fuel me for his service. This is what will make me and you obedient to his call. The call that he has placed on our lives to engage in that noble rescue mission. He, he's called us to go into all of the nations. Go into all of the world and make disciples. And he does that knowing that, and I can do that, knowing that all authority has been given to him and knowing also that surely he will be with us even to the end of the age. So friends, go in his name and in his strength. Amen? Amen.